I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design, with a chat about a boutique approach to international design. Not exclusively, but with a focus on how to grow a design firm to include an international clientele. This is Studio Thomas James. I sat down with Philip Thomas Vanderford and Jason James Jones to talk about international business and domestic business in interior design. They operate Studio Thomas James, and from their facilities in Dallas, where they also operate a workroom to build custom pieces, which, as anyone listening to this knows right now, is more valuable than ever before. The following chat is going to cover a lot of ground, of which every interior designer should be aware. And if you are thinking of ways to grow your client base, both domestically and internationally, you're going to absolutely love this. Philip and Jason have a calm approach to this turbulent business. Calm is good. And when you combine this approach with a seasoned view to all things design in an ever-changing world, it makes for a terrific conversation, one that I do hope you enjoy. This is Convo by Design, a podcast for the design community, available everywhere you find your favorite podcasts like designnetwork.org and Apple Podcasts. So make sure to subscribe to the show so you don't miss a single episode. And you're not going to want to miss a single episode, trust me. While we throttle things down for the holidays in 2021, I am preparing a slate of shows for you in 2022 that you are going to absolutely love. In the radio biz, this is what they call a tease. Convo by Design is working on our first ever design house, and it is a project the likes of which you haven't seen before, because this project takes many of the elements we have been experiencing over the past 18 months and uses a real project home in a very remote, distinct, and amazing location in collaboration with some of the world's most talented designers working today. This project house is being presented in a way that doesn't require you to see it in person, to understand all of the finer details and nuances in the work. It is remote, but not virtual, meaning the house is real, as is all of the incredible work you see so stay connected and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss a single minute convo by design is presented by walker zinger a progressive brand that was built on a promise to provide designers architects and homeowners with the right materials to do their best work that promise is fulfilled every day through a commitment to provide the best ceramic, glass, stone, porcelain, and concrete surfaces and finishes. But it's more than that. Walker Zanger believes strongly in serving the trade with a trade program that makes the specifying process simple and easy with the support you need. They have been staunch supporters of the trade since 1952. In 2020, I launched a partnership series with Walker Zanger called The Showroom. These intimate conversations showcase some of the best creatives in the business. We just ended season one, which had some amazing names. And if you want to check them out, please go back through the podcast catalog and find any episode entitled The Showroom so you can hear these amazing conversations. And if you haven't stopped by a Walker Zanger showroom lately, you're missing out and you need to go check them out. Walker Zanger is on the cutting edge of design, featuring products for every style and architectural feel you can possibly imagine or create. So check out any of their showrooms across the country or shop online, walkerzanger.com. So you, the firm is based in Dallas, but you know what I really love is that 
your your work is really international. Um, you've you've done a lot of international work. You you do a lot of domestic work, but even domestically, you know, you're you're in California, you're in Dallas, you're you're in Colorado. When did when did you two start working together? And how how did the development of the firm come to be what it is today? Um, I guess we kind of combined efforts. It's been about 10 years ago. And um, we were doing, um, we had a couple of, we had a couple of big projects that had cropped up in um, Colorado. And one thing that we kind of came to was that, you know, particularly with some of these big, um, you know, kind of large scale projects, you really, it really kind of becomes very much a team effort. And um, so we just found that, you know, combining, combining and, you know, allowing, you know, the resources and the offices and, uh, you know, uh, help really kind of made a difference. It just kind of organically happened, which was really, really nice at that particular time. And then it's just really continued to grow. So that that's been helpful for us. Where did you guys meet? Um, let's see. We met. I, I guess it was. I guess it was when I, I had taken a job in um, Little Rock with a designer right out of um, college, and then when I first came, um, when I first moved to Dallas, I was uh, working for Dongia. and I guess it would have been at Dongia. It'd be about I guess 16, 17 years ago now. I yeah. guess. Time flies. <laughs> Boy, that's the truth, isn't it? And it's it, it's really interesting too because when you talk about time flying, sixteen years in Texas design is like a lifetime. I mean, it's really interesting what's happening in in Texas in particular. And I I started an offshoot called Lone Star House of Design to focus specifically on on Texas design because I really do think it's amazing. I think that. Um, you know, Texas is what I would call a flyover design state, right? It's if you're not if you're not in California, you're not in New York or Miami, or if you're not in Atlanta or Boston or Denver or Aspen, you know, you kind of get ignored a little bit by traditional design mainstream media. And because of that, it's that's the audience as well. You kind of you kind of miss out on that. At the same time, I feel like, and and you tell me that Texas is kind of getting some attention now for all of the amazing work that's that's coming out of the state. You're you're exactly right. It's thrilling to us. I feel like, in a way, it's Texas or Dallas, especially. It's becoming a little New York in a way. And you're exactly right. Getting recognized. And I feel, and I feel like um, you know, five or six years ago, we were going elsewhere to work on some of our more interesting, important work. And I would say, as opposed to now, I think that actually right here, like right here, you know, in Dallas is by far all our kind of most important, interesting things coming up. Or, and also, or also on the vendor and the resources uh, side of things, we used to have to go elsewhere, but now a lot of really great resources are coming to us. And so that's huge. We still... Quite a bit elsewhere, but well, let's let's talk about that. And you know, it's, it's funny. I, resources is one of the things I wanted to talk to you about. Um, it was a little further down in the conversation, but I think you know, since you brought it up, it's actually a really good time. 
So interesting. So Houston has a design center. Austin has a design center-ish. Um, Dallas has a great design center, a great district. Um, then you've also got Round Top and you've got, you know, you've, you've got resources. In the past, many didn't really realize that now, but just try to go find something nice at Round Top and anyone who's been there recently <laughs> knows it's getting harder, right? It really is. It really is. Trying to find the extra special, unique, unusual things. Yeah. Define the differences for me between Austin's Design District Design Center, Houston's Design Center, and Dallas's. I, th I think the thing that we're sort of blessed with in Dallas as opposed to the other areas is we have, you know, everything's pretty connected. It's pretty close. You know, you, you jump in your, your car, it's kind of all right there. And so I think when you go other areas and you shop other places, you, you don't really, we kind of take it for granted. And then you go other places and you're like, oh, this is, it's crazy. You know, like we're, we're spoiled, I think, with having tons of showrooms and workrooms and, you know, just right there kind of in one area. I would compare Dallas more to Chicago. It's maybe even better than Chicago now and even better than California now. Whereas I think like Austin and Houston are getting there, but I yeah. think Dallas is still better. I because think. I think that, you know, we do, we do have the benefit of land and square footage. So you, you know, you go into a showroom in Dallas and they have a tendency to have a lot more product availability, you know, you larger see, showrooms, see and touch and feel. I lived in Dallas. Uh, I did two tours, nine years total. I was in broadcasting at, at the time. And when I went there the first time, which had to be, no, born and raised, I'm a native Angelino, right? So I was born and raised in LA, um, but moved to Lower Greenville, renting a house on the M streets and just absolutely loved it. Then bought a house, had it built from scratch, never even thought that I could do that in Irving and Valley Ranch, right? And then I kind of learned that, you know, design in Dallas in the, 80s, 90s, 70s, you have to like brick. You have to like brick and you have to like a very specific style. And I feel like that style that's almost representative all over Texas through the, the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s kind of set the tone for what, what the expectations were. Now, it's really interesting because Austin has such a different identity from Houston and Houston's identity is so different from Dallas and, you know, smaller cities, Abilene, you know, Lubbock, every city in Texas seems to have its own very distinct personality. What is, what is the personality? What is Dallas's personality now? That's a great question. And it's changing so rapidly with all the, the influx of all the, people getting to come in. It's, it's really, it's always kind of been that way though, it, that there's a lot of people. It's hard to find someone from Dallas. It seems like it, most people are. Um, yeah. I think, I think Dallas has such a varied, I think that is true because I think somebody, um, you know, we find the common theme of, of a lot of clients, you know, they're, they're, they're moved to, you know, business has been moved here. Um, a lot of it's, so I feel like a lot of it's, you know, work related. So, yeah, I feel like the identity is kind of flowing because, um, so many people really aren't specifically, you know, from Dallas, particularly lately, I feel like, you know, 
no no one we're working from for right now is like you know we're doing lots of houses here no one's from Dallas it's it's funny you compared Dallas to New York initially just as a as a I think Dallas is more like LA um insofar as people come to Dallas now to reinvent themselves for a number of reasons the cost of living is so low the opportunities are there now and when you have that kind of creative community that that moves in you know you you have the art galleries and you have Nasher and you have you know the American Airlines Center and you have all of these all of the infrastructure social and physical that has that is in this so it's really interesting to me because you know LA used to be the place to go where you wanted to just go drop in, drop out, reinvent yourself, kind of figure out who you were, and especially for creatives, right? And when you have a creative force like that that moves in, it affects everybody else because now they start to see what's available and what creatives can do with certain things. That being said, you've, you know, it's funny when I was there um, working in radio, they used to describe. Dallas as the home of the $30,000 a year millionaire, which, you know, basically is like you're making 30 grand a year, but you're living like king in, in Dallas because you can, it's a little different now, I assume, but you still have land, you still have infill opportunities, you still have the remodel market, you still have the refresh market. It's really interesting but that's not all you guys do. So you also have projects elsewhere. I, I'm curious, the, the resources that you have, and especially now, as hard as it is, you know, with the backlogs and trying to get materials, how you're working both in Dallas and out and how everything from the last 18 months has changed the business and changed the way you work. I think, I think it's been twice as difficult to you know, bring things to the finish line because it's taking so much, you know, you used to think like, Oh, it's eight weeks out. So now like, I feel like we're working so differently because you're planning. You're like, no, we need to order this stuff six months out. And, um, and it's been a lot more difficult, I think, to kind of just totally complete things. Um, and so it's had to, it's made us have to start, you know, where we used to start maybe, ordering furnishings about halfway into construction. Now, a lot of our new construction things we're, we're starting. I mean, we've ordered stuff in some cases before, like when they're, you know, when the lot's being cleared. Um, and, and then on the, on another thing that I never even dreamt we would have to deal with, we're working on a project in Montana and there are not very many receiving companies there. And particularly with it growing like crazy with um, a lot of new projects up there, we have to gauge when things are going to be received. So half of their project is being received here in Dallas and the other half up there. And then we'll have to end up shipping it up there. So it's just, even that is different now than it used to be. Receiving. I mean, holy cow. When it's just, it's really interesting. I've heard this from so many creatives, just this idea that you order something, you get a delivery date, you pay for it. And it's like, Oh yeah, it's not here. Where is it? Well, it could be at, at the port of Los Angeles. It could have fallen off a ship, in, you know, in transit. It could, I don't know. It's somewhere. You'll get it when you get it. How does, how has that changed the relationship with the clients or what do you do now to set the expectation that maybe you didn't do before? 
I think, I think lots of just really conversations in the beginning, you know, you know, saying don't, you know, don't expect this, like, you know, this is when this is going to happen. And, um, you know, I think it's been, it's been kind of a learning, a learning experience because you, we really have had to be a lot more frank. I feel like before, you know, you just naturally, you got ready to install the project. Everything was here. It was ready. And, you know, a lot of times things were here months, months and months earlier than you ever needed them. And now um, I think we've really just really had to plan a whole lot more than we ever have had to before. And in a perfect world, the entire project would install at the same time. That's one thing we've had to get over because that's just not the case because we'd be waiting forever. So there have been some holes, but again, that sort of does help the client to uh, at least they see something happening. They see, mm -hmm. they see their house coming together, even though there are. <laughs> that, that is, that is totally true. We really, we really, a few years ago, almost insisted, you know, really encouraged the whole house to install over a couple of day period, everything, you know, and, and you might have an item or two, but really it was kind of finesse. And it was a real tight thing. And, and we have had to be, you know, really flexible about like three or four small installs on projects. Well, I think it's interesting too, you know, um, after doing the show for gosh, eight plus years now, it's really interesting. I, I kind of developed this. I would ask designers, I would ask creatives, you know, about their time management and the things that y'all were working on from a time standpoint. And what I was told over years is kind of developed this, theory that you know you are working about 120% of your time meaning you know if you calculate all the things that you have to do between trying to attract new business working the clients you have working the clients that you have worked with in the past who may be up for a refresh or a new product project soon specifying respecifying research a product, working with showroom managers, all the things that, that designers have to do, you know, on site, working at, as, the, as the installs are taking place, receiving, checking in with receivers. You know, the calculation was you're working on about 120% of the time allocated to do that, which meant that there was time that, that you were spending on work that was at, at another point in time spent on personal time, you time, me time, you know, the, the hanging out, doing nothing. Now I'm curious because the legwork is, I, I kind of feel like that, that number's being jacked up because the amount of legwork that you have to do to track things down is crazy. The amount of time that you have to specify and re-specify, go back to the client. By the time you go back to the client and say, okay, this one's not going to make it, we can do this one. Then you go back to your rep and it's gone. How do you manage? I mean, serious question. Um, do you have strategies, revised strategies for how you're managing this? Have you had to hire up? What are you doing to accommodate for all of the added like busy time? I mean, we have had to add manpower and I feel like, you know, recently we've had to hire and I feel like a big chunk of that is managing getting materials in and that taking so much longer. Um, one thing that we kind of came to realization of about six months ago is we did, we quit subbing out as much based on um, reselections because we had several instances where, oh, this wasn't going to be in for 
a real, an extreme amount of time. And so then we reselected. Well, it turns out the reselection took longer than the original. And so we've tried to kind of um, work a little bit smarter in the last, I would say in the last six months and say, you know, just realistically, this is what we want. You know, the lead time's not perfect, but um, we're going to try and, you know, manage that. And we've really, we've also started staging projects in a manner that um, in a couple of instances, we've, t- we've taken the clients, maybe some existing furniture, some things that are in storage and we've gone in and made the house really livable and comfortable and the best it can be using existing items and that sort of thing. And um, sometimes even rented furniture. We've done that. Yeah, we've just, had, yeah. And then make it so make make the space, you know, knowing it's not going to be it's, you know, top, you know, condition. But um, then, you, you know, kind of being patient and then that that gives us, you know, the time and the patience to get it right and then kind of go install the end. So, yeah, we've kind of almost in a couple uh, in two projects specifically that I can think of, we really um, almost did the house twice. Hmm. One, one thing too, that's great about Dallas is that there are several showrooms that are now allowing things to be sold from the floor, which is really nice. Um, that's not the case in many, many cities, but but then again, um, one client I shopped at that morning, met with her around noon, maybe one o'clock. We decided on everything and every single thing we decided on was already sold. So it's um, that's you have to jump if you if you need it, you have to jump on it. So that's still challenging. But do you think that this is the new normal? Do you think that this is the way things are going to be going from now on, or do you think that it will it will return to normalcy once we shake out this this disruption in the supply chain? I think I think that will definitely, and I think we've already seen this like a little bit more normalcy as far as like lead times go. But you know, anytime it's kind of like with price increases, no one goes back and decreases the, you know, no one says, oh, now this is 30% less. Um, so I do think that there's going to be some long-term effects as far as like um, items coming in and planning and that sort of thing. So I think it will forever change the way we look at ordering product and timing on projects. I, I don't see that um, piece of the puzzle, you know, changing probably ever. Has this caused you to change your contracts or change how you work with your clients? You know, I think it's, it's definitely caused us to have these like really kind of raw, honest um, conversations up in the very, very beginning before we've even like formally taken on the project and just kind of setting um, expectations and, as much as we want to be like, yes, people and make it happen. And I feel like some, some of, sometimes that's why we've gotten certain projects right. is because we've, you know, had a sofa made in three days and drapery made overnight. And, you know, you've jumped through these hoops and you've done all these things for these people, but um, it's kind of had to make us like kind of calm down and step back and go, you know what, this is, you know, reality is reality. And we, you know, we, we can't, you know, there's certain things we just cannot do as much as we would want to and as much effort. And it's, and you also, there's a lot of things are just, you know, totally out of your control. Right. 
and just being as transparent as possible. We've just tried. It, it really has made us step and, back and relax. And we've and we've actually had to say no to several things recently. We've quite a few things like you know this is this is reality and this is the expectation. And um, if that you know if if you're not comfortable with that, then you know. So we we have had to kind of um, walk away from a few, a few projects, just, you know, realistically knowing, knowing that the next person's probably, you know, going to be the same way, you know, from a lead time perspective, but, um, you know, if, um, just kind of being really upfront. Well, here's the challenge. Um, you know, some designers in their contracts, in their agreements with their clients will have a no weekend clause, you know, don't, don't, don't call me on the weekends. Don't text me on the weekends. If you send an email, that's fine. I'm not going to read it. But, you know, if you do call on the weekends, it'll be, you know, here's, I've actually spoken to some designers who have instituted sort of like, it's not a penalty, but it's a, it's a, it's a cost bonus analysis. It's like, if you text me, you know, here's how much it's going to be. I'm going to charge you a fraction of an hour no matter how long it, you know, if you send it, I'm going to charge you a fraction of an hour. If I respond to it and it, every fraction thereof is going to be a full hour um, and it's going to be time and a half on the weekends or something, you know, if it's, if it's at night and on the weekends, have you changed your, have you done, I mean, it seems a bit, a bit drastic, but at the same time, he, here's the thing for me in talking to, to people like you, you are creatives. You, the work you do is an art form. And, you know, I've said this on multiple occasions, if it was just your ability to specify a sofa and get it delivered, that's, you know, that's a task, right? That's not a creative duty, but to, for someone to continue to be creative at a high level, you have to have the downtime. You have to be able to recharge. You have to be able to not work 24-7 because it, it taxes the creative process. So when it comes to that, every, I feel like everyone's just been jammed. Because you're at home, everyone knows you're at home. So, so they know you're available, right? How do you manage that? Um, I, I do think, I mean, I've, I found having to really set some limitations this last past year is, um, you know, and then as far as like, you know, it used to be, Oh, I'll, I'll meet you. Of course, we'll come into the office on Saturday and come up here and do this and do that. And, um, with certain, with certain people, you know, certain people are very respectful and, you know, kind of, you know, you'll take their call at nine o'clock because you know that that's, you know, few and far between, but we have had to, with a lot of people just say, you know, absolutely not and set some really firm kind of like structure because it would be, it would be a 24 seven um, deal. And then we've also tried to have larger sort of more important meetings where lots of things were addressed and there were, you know, big chunks of time set aside with tons of preparation and we found that, you know, kind of having those big formal meetings rather than 15 minutes here, a telephone call there um, has also helped with that. So we're sort of, sort of like, you know, hold, hold all of this information via text, via emails, and then we'll come in and we'll have something like, you know, you know, kind of very formal and laid out. Kind of makes it a more professional, even though most of our clients end up being friends anyway, it still keeps that portion of it a little bit more professional. 
Um, and even though we do work about seven days a week, we try really hard not to meet with clients on the weekends, just so that that downtime, it, we might be working, but we're just catching up. Um, and someday we hope to not even have to do that. But, you know, we, we're going to take the work while we can take it. Yeah, I guess you have to, right? So um, speaking of that, I wanted to get to, to some of the work a little bit. Oh, before I do, your relation, you had mentioned showrooms. And I'm curious, the showrooms that you have access to, have they stepped up um, rather I, in talking to so many manufacturers and, and showroom managers, some of the things that they've been doing, you know, whether it's street side slab review or, you know, bringing, bringing samples to the house and just sort of laying them out on the sidewalk and then people can come out and look at them in the light and then taking them back with them or providing revised um, and new sample kits. Any standouts in the showrooms that you guys work with who've, who've gone over and above um, who, who could, you know, who deserve a shout out? Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, one, uh, one thing that I think of immediately, um, uh, we have an amazing, you know, rep for Kravit, Lee Jofa, Brunswick. And I think that, you know, I, countless number of times that Jenny's been here with, you know, bringing tons of samples. And, and so, like, I feel like they've really gone way over and above. And um, I think of like Ansax, Rachel has, with Ansax, right, yeah. like constantly in here bringing. So, yeah. So we, I think a lot of our vendors have really um, gone way over and above, uh, you know, Bert with Stark. I mean, they've, you know, constantly bringing stuff in. So it, it has gone, it's gone a long, long way to, you know, make us be able to do our. Um, What's thrilling to me about all of that is that we're getting to work more as a team with our vendors and because they're a part of the project just as much as we are. And even though they may not ever meet the client, many times they do. Um, I think it's win-win for all of us. Yeah, agreed. And, and with that, I wanted to get to the projects a little bit. Um, I, I love doing this. And, and because this is a podcast, uh, those who are listening, um, if you go to the show notes, you can find links to all of the projects that we're talking about here. So if you want to see them as we go through them, you can go to the show notes and, uh, and it'll take you to the website where you can see all the projects um, as we go through them. The first one I wanted to ask you about, these are all on your website. Um, by the way, the first thing I want to mention, I love that you name your projects. Oh, good. It seems like, okay, it seems like such a small thing to do, but the fact that you brand them and that you name them and it's, it's not like, well, this is the Williams project, or this is, you know, this is the Birdsong street project. It's like, no, you actually give them the names. Um, they, and I want to ask you about that, you know, what the origin of the names are, because I think it's very cool. And the first is, um, the first one on top, which is the electric, which is in Dallas. Tell me about this project. Yeah. Uh, I want to make sure. Is that the one? Is that? Yeah. Okay. Um, neat, neat people. We've gotten to work for, uh, in fact, we're really good friends with them. Gotten um, four, I guess, have worked on four projects with them. Fun. Um, uh, but, it, they, but they kind of actually own a, a kind of a major um, electrical company. Uh -huh. And so um, a lot of times it's, it's maybe kind of like an inside joke. 
Um, well, and to that house, though, even though it's so traditional, it's it's stunning and shocking in in ways and strong. And the, and that's how they are. And so that's that name kind of works for a lot of different reasons, yeah. really. It, it does. And and because of the OK, so starting, I just want to start with the color palette because your choice in color uh, there are so many different variations. You know, we can get to what's obviously one of the, with the kids' rooms with that, that blue and white, the blue and white shocking is the wallpaper in back or the, the green library or, you know, the powder blue. Uh, it looks like a, it looks like a mud room. Um, they seem like, or the other, it looks like a, a young girl's room, I would think with the bunk bed, with the soft pastels in it. It's just really interesting to me that there's so much to unpack in this particular project. And they seem like, um, it seems like this would be the fun clients for you to work with because they seem like they're a little braver maybe than some others. Absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, we're about to, we're doing their Montana project as well. And uh, in fact, I fly out here in a few hours with them and they're just, uh, that's exactly right. They're, they're, they like to think out of the box uh, and they care. And so it's very much a team effort with all of us. And, um, and I think that's an example too, of when it's, when you have the luxury of it being the third house you've done for someone or the fourth house that you've done for someone, you kind of, um, there is sort of like a, a dialogue and a respect and an understanding that you are able to do, do something that you would have never been able to probably achieve maybe with like, you know, the first relationship, you know, the first time relationship with someone. And we're all in it together. We're all learning together. We're all learning new lines together. And um, it's just, it, it's, uh, that's an, well, all, all of our clients right now are that way. I'm also going to assume that this was, this was not a new build, but this was a remodel. Was it a whole house remodel? Oh, that's the best compliment ever because that's what we wanted it to feel like. It's actually brand new. Is it but, really? But we didn't want it to feel that way. It doesn't. Um, okay. And you know why I say that? There's a couple of things about the project. The foyer in particular with the black and whites. And by the way, you guys do something that I absolutely love. And that is in your photography, you allow people. It's not, it's not that first photo in the foyer. There's actually people there. And I love the blurred effect, but there's the fact that you add life to your design and your imagery, I think is brilliant. And I think it's great. But the lines all seem very cohesive throughout the entire project, which led me to believe that it, that it wasn't a, um, a new build, but I love it. Nice job. Good. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Um, the next one I wanted to ask you about was, was the instant classic. And what I like about this one is so... I like that you started with an exterior because I get to see the outside going in. So this is a, this is a colonial revival with a, with a modern spin. Did you guys do the exterior and the and the interior? Well, that, that was actually a, a project. We actually didn't fully furnish that house. That house was actually a high end um, spec that um, we did in conjunction with a local architect, Paul Turney. And, um, so Paul and I worked really, really closely together on the exterior. And we, we had this like really 
specific idea behind the house and the construction of the house and what we were going for. And so, um, yeah, that was, that was really, really a fun um, project. And it was, it was interesting because a lot of times spec work, you don't quite get to take it to that level. Um, there was a great amount of detail and thought um, put into that, particularly for it being a spec project. Yeah, absolutely. And just, you know, listen, you mentioned the architect. I think that there is some brilliant architectural work here too. Um, it's the little things between the arch door sort of pairing up against the arch dormers. And then you've also got on the sides of, of the entry, instead of having the bump out bays, you've got fully opening French doors, which I think really just kind of opens up this traditionally perhaps, you know, stuffy architecture um, of the 1930s, 1940s. I just think it's really cool. Um, the, can you walk me through the kitchen? Because I, I, well, there's not a, there's two things that I'm fascinated by. One is the kitchen um, and all the, the stone and tile. And the other is what looks like the master bath. And that shower is just to die for. Yeah. The kitchen, the, you know, one thing that we wanted to do, even though it was, you know, sort of a, a spec project, what, what we sort of wanted to is, um, the builder and I had been through a couple of houses that were built in the twenties and thirties, but had been remodeled later. And we loved the spirit that the properties had, um, you know, they had, and so we were, we were kind of going for that idea, but doing a spec, we had this strong kind of also thought process that we weren't going to allow that to not let us, you know, take we weren't going to, you know, sort of end up with this sort of like blase, you know, sort of generic palette or selections just because it was a spec. So we kind of had this sort of like invented specific client. So, um, you know, we went ahead and did sort of like the bold blue uh, statement in the kitchen. And uh, the master bathroom actually was kind of a um, kind of a fun accident. We had the Bardiglio and marble in the entryway um, that we carried through the entryway and there were some cut scraps off of that and we actually ended up kind of playing with it and came up with this pattern we could we never could find the exact pattern that pattern was actually sight cut um, out of the old pieces um, and I thought you know kind of kind of made it an interesting um, dramatic space. Do you wind up working on a lot of spec projects? You know, you know, it go. I feel like it kind of goes in, in phases, phases where we don't do any. And then all of a sudden you do, you know, you do quite a few or three um, or four at once. And actually yeah. right, right now we, um, we're, are doing two that have actually turned into, the client has stepped in and purchased the property. And so they've kind of evolved into um, custom uh, projects. But at times, at times, I think that the um, spec work does give you a really interesting perspective. It allows you to, you know, work really closely with um, the, you know, good builders and develop those relationships. 
that sort of thing as well. When you work on a spec project, do you work with a stager or do you memo things out for, for a photo shoot? How do you, how do you generally work? So, you know, that's, that's often kind of a really, a really big challenge because at times, you know, usually it gets done, usually it gets done by a stager and there's been times where, um, we felt that it's improved it and it's really made us look our best. And then there's been times when you're like, Oh my gosh, you know, I put all this effort in and it's sort of, you know, almost it's had the opposite effect because of what's, what's in it. And so that is, that is a, a, a little bit of a challenge. Typically though, we found that, you know, they've gotten before we get to the furnishing part of it, they've got purchased or, you know, someone stepped in and it's become custom. Do you, um, do you guys, do you have a line of furnishings? Uh, we hope we can someday. Yeah. I've laughed and said that we should, because we, we have built so many custom pieces and then we, there's those pieces that you, you know, you like you've built the chair 16 times and you've kind of perfected it with it. So in a way, lots of prototypes. It, 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 elaborate on that a little bit. Cause I'm curious. Um, there's this, it's a double-edged sword, right? Having a, having a line. And I've noticed that with, with some creatives, it's taken away their ability to, to use other product. If it's a direct competitor with a line that they have specifically, it aligns you and kind of ties you directly to a showroom or a manufacturer who's, who's producing for you, um, rather who's showing for you. What are the concerns and what's the upside? I mean, I could totally, I could totally see that. I mean, it would give you, it would probably, you know, one thing that we pride ourselves in is sort of not having a look. And I can see that, um, if you do have a product line, sometimes it even, you know, pushes that idea of a look, you know, it, it really, really kind of sometimes gets someone like in a really specific, from a branding standpoint, you, you think of this person, you, you know, you, you think of a very specific idea or look when you think of that person. And I totally interrupted you. I'm so sorry, but um, one of our concerns about that, we have several really good friends that do have lines and they find themselves actually that, becomes their focus, which is great. But when you really are a designer, sometimes you're not getting to do full projects like you once did. And so that's sort of our concern because we, that's where our passion is. Um, we, of course, it's terribly important that each piece for those projects is fantastic, but it would just mean growing yet again, which hopefully we can do at some point in the future. But we've talked about that quite a bit lately, especially. If you did have a line, what what are some of the what are some of the aspects that really that kind of turn you guys on that that you could see yourself going towards? Would it be case goods? Would it be what would it be? You know, the thing that I always think about it in particular when it's something that I can't find, and you know, it's like I'm shopping for a project, and maybe it's like you're, you know, doing like five dining rooms in a row. And it's like, my gosh, I cannot find a table. Like, like this is crazy. Like I can't find this piece. So 
you know, I think a lot of what I see um, missing in our market that I think that I would address, I think we have extremely beautiful, high-end, curated, real specific furniture. And then I think the um, low-end market, you know, you know, you know, sort of mass production, there's tons of that too. But oftentimes what um, I'll struggle for when shopping for a project is, you know, like, you know, I have a, a project right now where they have five children and a breakfast table. And it was, I was like laughing about not being able to find something that was like, you know, durable, um, you know, sort of practical. I mean, still beautiful, but, you know, just a good, durable. Kind of a middle of the road type of, uh, that's, that's where, uh, a lot that's of, what's missing. I yeah, think. a lot of times that's a, that's a struggle. You know, you want something of really great quality, but sometimes you just want a good workhorse that's not making this profound um, design, you know, statement. Um, so a lot of times I, what we end up struggling with, I think I would um, address some of those like, good like solid basics that would be the market that we would try to to well and for one thing too it goes back to dallas because real estate is cheaper and houses are quite a bit larger sometimes really high-end refined pieces aren't quite big enough they're they're not and you really have to punch them up whether that be a table or even a chair or a sofa because otherwise they would look ridiculous yeah, in we, some of these houses we've recently on that project that we ordered every most of it last week. I mean, we constantly find it every single piece had to either be customized, custom made or customized because, you know, it's the dining table needed to seat 18 and the chairs needed to be a certain scale. And, you know, I didn't need a 60 inch console. I needed a 10 foot console. And so, um, yeah. And I, I do think that's very common. Um, in Dallas, you know, if you're, I mean, if we're working in a high rise or something, it's a different story, but, um, we oftentimes in Dallas, because of the scale of the houses, like a lot of times we will go to use something like vintage or antique and we laugh about, you know, kind of the ridiculousness of the scale, um, because our houses do, you know, have a tendency here to be, you know, a little too big. Yeah. Quite large. That's funny. Speaking of that, um, wanted to last project I wanted to talk to you about today is my favorite name so far is the risky business. Why oh. the name? Why the name? <laughs> well, there again, we have worked with them for years and years, uh, multiple projects. In fact, just moved them into uh, a high rise, uh, a penthouse high rise. Um, their last name is risky. And um, their company for Risky business uh, solutions, I think, and uh, neat. Oh, just incredible people, though. Neat people. I love that. So this one's in Dallas. This is a really interesting project to me because it doesn't. Now I don't know if it's if it was newly built. It looks like it might have been newly built, but it's it looks like one of those where it feels to me like the client said, "Hey, what would you guys do?" You, you kind of got a little bit of free reign on this one, it feels like. Yeah? Neat thing on that one, it just sold. And the people that bought it said they would not buy it unless they could buy all the furniture. So they did. So uh, we were getting to buy them all. But, the that, but that, yeah. was, that was actually not a new construction project. It was a, um, but it was a heavy, heavy remodel. Mm -hmm. um, and 
what was interesting about it, there was there were so many kind of wonderful architectural, like strong elements about the house, but it felt when we started it, it felt extremely, extremely heavy and dark. And so, but you know, when you were dealing with like miles and miles of lot, like limestone, you know, it was because of the way it was constructed. Um, you know, it was, it did, it, t- it took a little bit more thought I feel like, well, than it, a lot it, of like a normal remodel. The scale and also how it was built was like a commercial space. That That's really basically what you could compare it to. Everything was so authentic and real and heavy. And mm-hmm. it just was a little bit of a different approach. I think the drop on the, the chandelier in the living room is 30 feet or something like that. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too, because it, it looks, it looks like there's a ton of Austin limestone in this mm-hmm. place. And if I'm, if I'm trying to figure out the scale and I'm looking and I'm counting the blocks and then you tell me it's a 30 foot drop on that. Now I get it. Now it's like, okay, this place is huge. Yeah. Um, and because sometimes in, in the imagery, you can't really tell. Right. Um, and I don't think you can tell, but that has a back-to-back double kitchen. So everything is twice the scale. So each one is enormous. And I don't know if you can see them both in any of those photos, but that that's all um, open in there. So let me ask you about that. The idea of a, of a back-to-back dual kitchen scenario. It's really interesting because in, in Los Angeles, the idea of a double kitchen has been around for quite some time. And, you know, it started with, you know, with, with kosher families who would have basically two kitchens, same space, right? So you just have two of every appliance. So you need double the space. And then the Asian communities in, you know, Pasadena, Monrovia, Eagle Rock, those areas um, would have the, the luxury kitchen for show. And then the dirty working kitchen behind it where you, you know, the oil can splatter and the odors and the grease. And because, you know, for natural cooking that you can have all that in a, in a dirty kitchen and and it's all, the materials are much different. And then you've got this gleaming kitchen for show, which is always like that. And then you had this, you know, this sort of Eastern European clientele come in and they had just a totally different taste, but it was the same idea where you'd have a working kitchen and then a kitchen for show what was the purpose of the, of the dual kitchen? Because it's funny, originally when I was looking at one of these, I, because I'm looking at two ranges, I thought it was a mirrored wall or something, but now it makes perfect sense. What was the purpose? So it was actually done that way from the beginning. And I believe it was done as a kosher kitchen because it's very, there's nothing separated about it. It's completely open. Although we did open up the space quite a bit more than it was, but they have how many, how many grandchildren? They they have 10 grandchildren and they're very, very close to them all. And they're there often. So it was very necessary, even if they, and they do everything together. So it's just very much. uh, So in work, yeah. And working through the space, it actually became like, when we started talking about like, the needs and drawers and that sort of thing. It was like, Oh, well actually maybe this will work well. Um, and so actually it, it turned out that it did work really well. And they were, you know, like the kids would be in there cooking and um, yeah. So it ended up being sort of a bonus, but we, you know, we didn't, that the, the pre-existing condition was, was there. What's the, what's the depth? Do you recall what the depth is on the, uh, 
on the walls with the with the range? What are those ranges? Because they look narrow to me. Uh, they do. I think it's because the ceilings are so tall. Mm. Um, I think oh. the the depth. Yeah, they're two yeah. di- they're two different sizes. Um, I, I think it's very. I think one, they're not because there were two. They're not large. I think mm-hmm. one of them was just forty eight, and one of them was like um, it wasn't a sixty. I think there was a forty eight and. 54 or 52. Yeah. They are are different. Uh It's funny. It took me. You're right. They are. They are different. See, I didn't even realize that. That's very cool. That's very cool. And then in the, in the dining space, that banquette is incredibly original. Yeah. And that actually, now that actually was part, that was actually all cabinetry on that end. And so that was actually all ripped out and the banquette was added, but it feel, but it feels like it should have been there from the beginning. Yes. So I have a stupid question for you. When you have a house that is completely limestone like this, when they, when they attach the original cabinetry, they anchor in. Mm-hmm. So when you're remodeling and when you're doing your design, do you patch? Do you leave it? Do you cover it? What do you do? We had some, we had a couple of areas where the limestone had to be replaced anyway. And so we actually went back in and put in new, um, which, which we had to do. And um, it had all gotten really dingy. I don't know what the previous people had been, what they had done to the floors and I don't know if some of it was intentional, but it was very, the floors were really just like, had gotten this really kind of like yellow, like dark look to them. So all of it was, you know, acid washed um, at one point. And so you really don't see where it's been worked back in, but they did, they did have to go to some length to try to, you know, get that, get the, get it to match. And we have a phenomenal art, um, finisher who was able in other areas where we couldn't remove it we were able to patch and he was able to paint it so well you can't even tell mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's it kind of was a case-by-case thing in that project and again it's something that i just thought about too when you said the word paint there's not a single painted wall in this space no there's not not That's- one mm-hmm. When you go to the upstairs, there are seven bedrooms upstairs or six. And there, yeah, the, the upstairs, there's no sheetrock downstairs. But there are, there is a, a little bit of sheetrock in those bedrooms upstairs. So, what kind of challenge was it for you to specify appliances? Um, do you know what, what year the house was built? I want to say, gosh, how long were they? I, I want to say it was about 10 years old. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. started working on it. Okay, well, because it's interesting, um, you know, the way appliances are right now, it's so tough because sizes are changing again. Mm -hmm. And how do you specify on a project like this? I mean, it must be really hard to try to find because you can't you can't change the size of an appliance. You just can't. No, right. Well, and particularly with all the interesting European models that we get to pick from now. I think um, Philip has one, I think that's on back order for a year and a half or something yeah. like that, but, but she's going to wait on it because it's, 
it's going to be so wonderful, but you're exactly right. That's always. In this instance, we ended up completely remaking because of that issue. It ended up that we just completely scrapped the Island mm-hmm. and started over from scratch. And it got to be, it was, it was, it, there it was too, there were too many different changes and edits and needs that had to happen. It didn't, you know, make sense to salvage it. Well, one of the things that you did too, which I think is absolutely brilliant in, um, in one of the bedrooms is that headboard, which appears to be what, like something like nine or 10 feet tall. And in, in a space where you can't paint the walls, you could put art there, but I think going with a, with a high, uh, upholstered headboard like that is just brilliant. Mm-hmm. And also too, that was one challenge in the space. It felt, um, when we first walked in, it felt very cold. And so if there was any challenge with the project, it was definitely warming, you know, warming it up. Um, And that particular room, it's, you can't tell from the photograph, but it's actually three sections. It's enormous, that space. So um, that's the lap, that's the back part of that space. And the the first part is a, a, basically a sitting room. And the second part is a kind of a reception area that goes into the bathroom so that headboard was crucial to pull it in check to make it actually somewhat cozy because it was the ceilings were soaring and I mean that was a whole house in itself really that one room yeah it's really interesting too because I feel like a lot of a lot of your work is it it feels to me that it's 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 inspired and imbued with this this hospitality kind of feel to it where you want to make sure that it's if it's big, you want it to be cozy. If it's small, you want to open it up. You're, I, I get this. And um, are you finding more of your clients now, especially? And we keep talking about the influence over the last 18 months, right? But are you finding that more of your clients are asking for the things that maybe it, it isn't just about beauty anymore, but it's about so much more? What? Yeah, 100%. Uh, yes, you're exactly right. Whether it be comfort or the lighting or um it, it's just it's it could be a multitude of things are you being asked for anything different um i think that people are definitely it's um like I, I feel like you know in dallas for a while it was like everybody was like oh we're gonna meet out at a restaurant we're gonna go here we're gonna do that and i think entertaining from home has definitely it's almost like we've we've gone back in time from that perspective um, where people really, you know, want to entertain and be at home a whole lot more. And so I'm finding the conversations being about, you know, I want a really, really comfortable dining chair because we might be in here for two or three hours. hours. Mm -hmm. And so I'm finding, you know, the entertainment from home conversations and situations being very different than they were say two years ago. Yeah. Well, listen, thank you for the time today. I, I love this journey. The work is brilliant. Um, love meeting you guys. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for doing it. Thank you thank so you. much. You've been fantastic. Thank you. Thank you, Jason and Philip. I really enjoyed our time together. Thank you, Walker Zanger, for presenting Convo by Design. Thank you, Thermosol, for your partnership. You are both remarkable design partners and amazing allies for the trade. So thank you. 
And thank you for listening. As you may have noticed, Convo by Design is bringing you design talent from across the country. It's not just about LA and New York, but Alabama, Louisiana, and yes, Dallas, Texas. Thanks again for listening. Remember why you do what you do and that the business of design is all about making better the lives of those we serve. Until next week, be well and take today first. Mm